Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're towards the middle of the middle book of the Torah. So we're, we're right in the middle of the Torah. And appropriately, uh, the first year triennial, which many of you know we read on, I, I read on, uh, is the, we're in the first third of every portion. So we get through this text every three years. As we're at the middle of the Torah, it makes perfect sense to me that we are coming in chapter 16 of the book of Leviticus to the description of what the high priest is to do on Yom Kippur. So towards the center of the Torah, we have the center, really, of our Jewish practice. Once upon a time, this was not the central Jewish communal practice, really, because the community wasn't as involved in this ritual uh, as the priesthood was. So this is really uh, about cleansing the shrine, cleansing the mishkan, the tabernacle, Oh, and yeah. it had to be done routinely because it was a magnet for impurity and um, and sin, in this case, in terms of Israelites having defiled the sancta by not taking care of their own purity needs when they become defiled, right? So we've talked a lot about that there's not judgment attached to purity or impurity, that is you're in a state of regularity or dysregularity. But if you're in a state of dysregularity, you have to, before you have contact with the shrine, you know, Kodesh, the holy, you have to take care of that. So you have to bring an offering. Sometimes you have to be outside the camp. You have to bathe. You have to change your clothes. You have to do all of these things uh, before you can have contact with the sancta again in a, in a way that's safe for the actual um, shrine to protect it from contamination. So this ritual had to be done in order to um, make sure that the Mishkan, the tabernacle, uh, was tended to so that God's presence could be there, so that God's presence could dwell among the people. We are stuck smack in P, right, the priestly source, before the holiness code is written. The Holiness Code is Leviticus uh, 19, and that all of that material is all of the stuff that we associate with the moral and ethical laws that are in Leviticus. So leaving the edges of your field for the poor, not putting a stumbling block before the blind, not not giving false testimony and using God's name to further the lie, there, there's all kinds of stuff that comes to us that we still talk about. Actually, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, all this kind of stuff that we still turn to very often when we want to come to this double portion of Acharimot and Kedoshim. People like Bert run to Kedoshim, the holiness code, because that's the groovy stuff, right? That's the stuff that we still relate to today. This, this stuff we're going to read today is like, really? One, one scholar who's a famous Bible scholar, you know, this is the most embarrassing part of the Torah, these, these rituals that we're going to read today. Okay, I feel completely differently. I think this stuff is super groovy. I think this is really cool stuff. I love this stuff. 
Um, there's a part of me that wishes we still had something like this. Um, and you know me. You know that I envy the Catholics a lot um, for all of their amazing ritual and the way things are physicalized. Um, and th there's a part of me that really wishes we had some kind of um, ritual of riddance, which is what this is. Uh, when we get to the scapegoat, it's an uh, it's a ritual of riddance, right? Ridding the Israelite camp of of the dross of sin. Um, and I really miss that we don't that we don't have something a little more tangible like that. All right, let's look. Some of you may not even know this material. I don't know. This is read in traditionally. This is read in the synagogue on Yom Kippur. We don't read this text on Yom Kippur. Um, we have an alternative text. We read from the Holiness Code. So, um, but uh, what I want to say before we start this text is the, the authors of the Holiness Code are later, much later than this material that we're reading. They're both smack next to each other in Leviticus. This is the P source, the priestly source. Then there's a school called H, the Holiness Code probably emerged out of the priestly school in a response to the early prophets. So we have the priestly sacrificial system. We have the cult system here, and we get lots of descriptions of that in Leviticus. Then at some point we have the first prophets, Amos, all those guys saying, that's all you care about is doing your sacrifices. Well, what about being kind to people and being honest in your business and all those other things, the ethical and moral considerations. And so the priests have to respond, and they respond with H. They respond with the holiness code. So right, what we're going to read is separate from ethical and moral implications. This is simply how the system works. And right now we're getting the description of what the priest has to do as a technician. Right? So think somebody who's dealing with dangerous nuclear substances. This is the manual for what you have to do in the nuclear power plant every so often to make sure everything is kosher. All right, let's look at the text. We're in Parshat Aharimot, and God speaks to Moshe Aharimot Shnei Aaron after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died, right, when they came closely, when they came before God, um, and they got dead from that. That impersonal fire, that force that went out from the Holy of Holies and consumed Nadav and Avihu, that's the kind of thing we're dealing with here. God is not anthropomorphized in any way. God is not described as angry or as punishing. We get in P, we get no descriptions of God having any emotion or being a personality of any kind. God is completely a force that just has things that, that make it ignite. That's just how it is. So when you see with P, they're, they're just dead. That's what happened. They brought their 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 zara, their strange fire, and boom, it caused that fire from Lifnei Adonai, from before Yudhei to come and consume them. No emotion, no anything attached to that. It's just cause and effect. That's the source we're dealing with here. That's P. All right, now let's look at verse 2. God says to Moshe, tell your brother Aharon that he is not to come at will into the shrine behind the curtain in front of the cover that is upon the ark, lest he die. For I appear in the cloud 
over the cover. All right, so we have some terminology here. So what? So God is saying Aharon can't come in at just any time, right? Bechol eight, any time. Why? Because he could die because the concentrated kavod of God is there. And we know that is super, super dangerous, really dangerous. All right. So we have a couple of terms here, the parochet. So he can't come in front of the parochet. That's the curtain. That's the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from the rest of the Mishkan, from the rest of the tent. Outside the parochet, you have the incense altar, the menorah, the showbread for the, I mean, the table for the showbread. That's all outside the parochet. So he can't come at will into the shrine that's behind the parochet, the holy of holies. And what, what is in the holy of holies, whatever is in the holy of holies is if you come into the parochet, if you come into the curtain, you're coming into being in front of the kaporet. The kaporet is the cover that is on the ark. Now, this might sound familiar, this root, yeah? It might sound familiar to you when you hear kuf, kaf, pe, resh, kaper, right? This is Yom Kippur, kapara, atonement. All right, so so what here, kaporet, why is the cover of the ark called the kaporet? That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Shouldn't the cover be called something that has to do with covering instead of something that's about, um, about you know, this idea of, of kapara, of, uh, and I don't want to say atonement, really. Um, it's, uh, I'm not finding the right word. It'll come to me. Um, so, so expiation. Thank you, Pam. Yes, expiation. Why, why call the thing covering the ark the expiation thing? Doesn't seem to make a lot of sense unless we remember what the ark actually technically was, which was the throne of God. God sits on the kruvim on top of the aron. The actual ark is the footstool of the throne. And in the ancient world, the agreement, the breed, the covenant between the ruling vassal king and the folks the king conquered, those agreements, those covenants were placed in the footstool. So we can understand that the tablets are placed in the footstool of the divine throne. That is our covenant with God. If that's God's throne, then it's from that very place that God affects the expiation of the people and the expiation, right, of everything that goes into needing to happen for the Mishkan to be purified. That's why it's called Kaporet, because it's from that place, that very place, that the divine makes expiation. So... Aharon can't come in behind the parochet in front of the kaporet anytime he wants to. Bezot yavo Aharon el hakodesh. This is how Aharon will come into the kodesh, into the holy of holies. And when it says bezot yavo, it means only like this will he come in. How? 
with a bull of the herd for a sin offering, right? So he has to bring his own sin offering because it's assumed the priests are human. And so the priest will have sinned. So he has to bring a sin offering and then he has to bring an olah. And how does he do this? So he will wear sacred, sacral linen. And he will wear uh, linen breeches on his flesh. And he will be girded with a linen sash. And he'll wear a mitznethet bad. He'll wear a, a turban of linen. Big de kodesh hem. These are sacred vestments. So he will immerse in water as a rite of purification, and then he will put on these clothes. These clothes are white linen, which is different from what the priest normally wears. What does the high priest normally wear? Let's remember. Crimson, scarlet, blue, indigo, right? All those very, very expensive colors in the ancient world. And gold was actually spun into thread and woven into those garments. They were actually gold. Um, you know, when they, so you can imagine they were kind of flashy, right? So kind of like the Rod Stewart of, you know, the ancient world. So like they would, they would catch the sun and like they would like, you know, glitter. So, so they're gorgeous. They're gorgeous clothes that the priest normally wears. This is another outfit entirely. And just for this ritual, when he's coming into the Holy of Holies, he's wearing simple linen garments. That's all. And from the Israelite community, he'll take two he goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So the priest has to bring an offering for the priesthood. And they have to bring an offering for the people who will have inadvertently contaminated the sancta by not taking care of their own rites of purification in times that they become impure. If they have a night emission, if they have intercourse, if they've had a baby, if they if they're you know in contact with a corpse, all those things that bring ritual um, impurity. If you haven't taken care of it and you've come into contact with the sancta, you leave. COVID-19 behind. So that has to be cleaned, right? Like cleaned and disinfected. All right. So that's what's going on here is that the people have contributed to this contamination. So they have to have a sin offering brought on their behalf. All right. He's taken two goats, two izim. So ez means goat. He's taking two izim. And he stands them, he'emidotam, causes them to stand, lifne Adonai. Here we go again. Remember, we had this term a whole lot in the Nadav and Abihu story. Lifne Adonai, before Adonai, before Yerevave. So standing something before God is a preparatory act. We have another verb in Hebrew that we get when you're actually talking about offering it. That is vehikriv, to bring it close, right? The word for sacrifice, korban, to come close. So that's vehikriv. We don't see vehikriv yet. We're just seeing vehemidotam. He stands them before the divine. That means this is a preparation for something. All right, what, what's, what's going to happen? 
ונתן אהרון על שני השעירים גורלות, גורל אחד לאדוני וגורל אחד לעזאזל. So Aaron is going to um, give lots, assign lots to the two goats. One lot marks that goat to Yudhevavhe, and the other goat gets a lot that assigns it to Azazel. Now, those of you who know Hebrew know when you put that lamed in front of something, it means two. This is to God. And that's to Azazel. But we know from archaeology in the ancient world, looking at vessels that hold oil and wine, looking at those things, we see a seal in many of them from this period, from the Iron Age, from the biblical period. We see seals, and on the seal it says, Le, and someone's name. So that Lamed and someone's name. And what that means in that case is that's who the owner is. So if it says Lishmuel on the, you know, what do you call it? An amphor or whatever the heck it is. Um, so if it says Lishmuel, huh? Shuari? No. Um, the, the things, the clay vessels that hold wine. An amphor, I forget what it's called. So if you have one of those and there's a seal on it, Lishnuel, let's say, that means it's it belongs to Samuel. Amphor. Am- yes, So we see this throughout the ancient world at this period. So, so what are we actually seeing? We're seeing in this pasuk, in this verse, We're seeing that one goat is designated for Yudhe meaning belonging to Yudhe and one is designated as belonging to Azazel. So these things are put right up against each other. Yudhe gets a goat, and Azazel gets a goat. So these are parallel, clearly. This Azazel is being set up exactly over and against Yudhe We're going to talk about that in a minute. So now, now he's bringing forward, right? So designating as a sacrifice, a korban, the goat designated for Yudhe And he makes of it a chatat offering, a sin offering. The one that's for Azazel Ya'amar chai lifnei Adonai, it stays alive, and Aharon stands it alive before God. Lechaper alav, l'shlachotol azazel hamidbara, to make expiation with it, meaning by means of it, and to send it off to Azazel in the midbar, in the wilderness. All right? So then... Aharon has to offer, now we had reference to it before, but now he's actually going to do it. He makes expiation for himself and his household with his sin offering. Then he's going to take a panful of glowing coals scooped from the altar before Yudhe Buffet, right? Because that's where the altar is. Two handfuls of finely ground aromatic incense and bring this behind the curtain. So he's got to go get the incense in his fire pan. He's got to go get the incense, put it on the coals, and then bring it 
behind the parochet. Why? We get told in verse 13. So, and he will bring the, he'll put the incense on the coals. Everything's happening right? Um, before Yudhe So that the cloud from the incense screens the kaporet. Right? It, it hides the kaporet. Lest he die. Okay, so now we know there's something super dangerous about coming, even Aharon, even on this day, even with instruction, even being commanded. There's something really dangerous about coming in to uh, the parochet, standing in the Kodesh Kedoshim, the Holy of Holies, in front of the Kaporet. God's concentrated essence is there, and it is absolutely um, lethal. So we need this cloud of incense smoke to shield the priest from the concentrated essence of God that presumably is on the Aron, is on the Ark, on the Kaporet. Now he's got to put that down and he's got to go get blood from the par, from the bull, and he's going to take his finger and sprinkle it Right, he's going to sprinkle this blood from his finger seven times. So in front of the kaporet, and then he's going to um, come out and do some more with it. So he had to put down the incense. Now he goes and gets the blood. This is the only time we see blood entering the Holy of Holies. Right, the blood is usually where? out at the Mizbeach, out at the altar. So this is the first time we see, and the only time we see, Aharon bringing dam, bringing the blood into the Holy of Holies and sprinkling there. All right, then he's going to slaughter the people's sin offering and bring its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the blood of the bull. So he's making expiation for himself and his family, and he's doing it, bringing that sin offering and sprinkling of its blood in the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people as well. The chiper al hakodesh. When we use kapara al on, he's making expiation for or on the sanctuary. Okay, uh, we we get a different um, preposition when it's on behalf of. Right, making expiation on behalf of the people or for the people. Right, this is on the sancta, so that's going to cleanse that. Right, um, and here we get that word shochen to dwell. Right, so thus will Aaron purge the shrine of the uncleanness and transgression of the Israelites, whatever their sins. And he shall do the same for the Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting, which abides with them in the midst of their uncleanness. This is God's deal. God made a deal with the Israelite people. I agree to abide with you, impure people, with you who keep messing up, with you who are human, and therefore are possibly to in Tum'ah, in a state of ritual dysregularity and impurity, I will make my abode in the middle of y'all, 
who get Tum'ah. I'll do that if you keep my Mishkan pure so that I can be there. Okay, so God makes a deal. God knows the people will be Tameh at some time or another. We're commanded to. We're commanded to have children. We're commanded to bury the dead. We're commanded to become Tameh. But, and God agrees to that circumstance that God is going to dwell among this people that's going to experience Tum'ah at one point or another. Everybody will. But you have to agree as Israel to keep my Mishkan Tahor, pure. That's the agreement. So this is Aaron keeping the Israelite end of the bargain. And when he goes in to make expiation in the shrine, nobody else shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out. When he has made expiation for himself and his household and for the whole congregation of Israel, then he's going to go to the altar. And now he needs to deal with the altar. Right. And, and this here uses the word purge, right? He shall purge it. So now he's going to put blood on each of the horns of the altar and the rest he's going to sprinkle with his finger seven times, and he's going to cleanse it of the uncleanness of the Israelites and re, I would say, re-consecrate it, right? All right. When he's finished purging the shrine, the tent of meeting, and the altar, the live goat shall be brought forward. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it, all the iniquities and transgressions of the Israelites, whatever their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and it shall be sent off to the wilderness through a designated person. All right. So where is this thing sent? We're just told Hamidbara, towards the Midbar, to the wilderness, all right? By Ish-Eti, we don't know what this means. Ish et ate from a certain kind of designated time, maybe. Like this guy is just designated to do it at this particular time. He's not responsible for any other thing related to this. We, we don't know. And so the goat will carry with it, will lift up all of the sins um, of the Israelites and where's it going to go? El Eretz Gzeira, to a land that is called Gzeira. It's described as Gzeira. Here, our translation is a place that is inaccessible, cut off. Gzeira is about being cut off. So they're translating it as inaccessible. Veshilach etasair bamidbar. And it is set free in the midbar. And then Aaron's going to take off all those linen vestments that he put on when he entered the shrine and leave them there. This seems very confusing because then he will have to come out naked. So this verse is probably out of place or out of order or else my scholars tell me it can also mean that he came near the, he didn't go in, back in. He comes close to the tent of meeting where there's a screened off area for him to disrobe and immerse that there would have been right near the shrine, as there was in the temple, a place where you could disrobe and uh, immerse and then put on your other clothes as a priest. So, he washes his flesh in water in a place that is, taho, is kadosh, is holy, 
Now he puts on his usual normal high priest stuff, right? Um, and he offers his burnt offering, so the Olah and the Olah of the people. The fat of the sin offering he turns to smoke, and he who set the Azazel goat free will wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and after that may re-enter the camp. Because remember, they've been involved in rites of expiation. So they've been exposed to the junk that they're helping get rid of. So now they have to go through the decontamination process, right? You, you, like in science fiction where you have to stand, where you come back onto the ship and you have to stand there and it's like, right? To get rid of any possibility of bringing any of that junk, any spores, you know, uh, in with you. So he... Uh, excuse me, Amy. I'm sorry, but could you give me that sound effect again? Because I, I missed it. Right. So um, so that's what they're doing. They're getting rid of any possibility of bringing anything in with them. Uh, and when when is this to be done? This is to be a chok, meaning it doesn't make any sense. You couldn't get there yourself. You needed God to tell you this because it's not logical. Um, it's a chok olam forever. In the seventh month. On the tenth day of the month, you will press, you will oppress your souls. And all kinds of work you won't do. Neither the citizen nor the the ger, the uh, resident alien who lives with you. For on this day, atonement will be made over y'all. To purify y'all. From all y'all's sins. Before God. It's all got to happen before Titaru, You will be purified. Shabbat Shabbaton. This is a Shabbat Shabbaton. We don't get this about the festivals. We don't get this about the three major festivals, that it is a Shabbat Shabbaton, a Shabbat of complete Shabbating. It shall be to you, and you shall oppress your own souls as a hook, as a law forever. All right. I'm going to go back now. We're going to go back and talk. But I want you to see um, that this, these verses, 29, 30, 30 and 31 scholars argue that this is a later gloss and the scholar in particular I'm going to um, talk about is Israel Knoll. Uh, I learned with him at Hartman in Jerusalem um, and he is a very wise, very experienced biblical scholar. He is an old man now, which always makes me trust people more um, because his ideas have had to stand up, right, to the test of decades and decades and decades of other scholarly work, of other peer, right? It's kind of, you know, peer-reviewed, but, like, a long time ago. He wrote this a long time ago, and I can tell you that because his beard, when he wrote it, was black. Okay. So, what does he say? He, he Israel Knoll argues that this, this timing of this Yom Kippur business happening in the 10th month, I mean the seventh month on the 10th day of the month 
that this is a later gloss, that the original Levitical text only had the procedure. It didn't say how often the procedure was going to happen, and it didn't say when it was going to happen. And he argues the reason for that is because the writers who wrote this section would have wanted very much to separate this ritual from any attachment to an agricultural time of year. Why? Because they are in a pagan setting. They are in a Canaanite pagan world, right, in the in ancient Mesopotamia, the ancient Near East. And in that pagan setting, the rites, the big rituals and rites were all about Baal, the god of rain and life and fertility, like in, in Canaan. There are other gods, obviously, in other neighboring um, peoples. But in Canaan, it's about Baal, the god of rain and fertility and life and growth. That force is always coming up against moat. Sounds like the Hebrew word for death, right? Exactly. The, the Canaanite god moat is all about death and withering. So there is a constant struggle between Baal and moat, between growth and productivity and withering and death. That is a constant tension in Canaanite and other neighboring pagan mythologies and religions. So Knoll argues P would have been very opposed in this new Yahwist Israelite tradition, very opposed to taking this ritual that's got yud Bafe and Azazel and making them somehow tied to any kind of time of year, any kind of possibility of tying it into the agricultural cycle. Because Yudhe Buffet, of course, is outside of that cycle. I just gave you a lot. I know. I gave you a lot. So just chew on it for a little bit. I'm going to walk us through it. So in looking at Knoll, he, he argues Azazel is a very old figure. The rabbis are very interested in Azazel not being a very old figure. The rabbis are very interested in Azazel being a place. Right? That that Lamed, this goat is designated to Azazel, means literally the goat's going to go to Azazel. It really doesn't read that way. The text really does read one goat is L'Yudhevave, for God, and one goat is for Azazel. Not a place, but a figure that is over and against L'Yudhevave. All right. Now, just like in Genesis, remember when we have Tehom, that Ruach Adonai Merachefet, God's uh, spirit, when we open Genesis, is hovering over what? Tehom, the deep. And we've talked about Tehom being a remnant of Tiamat, right? The, the creatress, the goddess that is slain by, right, the God to make things in this world. But Tiamat to home in our Genesis text is completely passive. There is no pushing back against Yudhe Same with Azazel. Unlike Mot that is struggling against Baal, the Yahwist tradition does not want to set something up as battling God, that there is this force battling the divine. That is not the sense. The sense, though, is 
sin originates somewhere and somebody's got to kind of own that. Somebody's got to take that in. And that figure becomes uh, Azazel in our ritual. In order to purify the Israelites, Knoll writes, the Israelites must find an evil persona to accept their sins. And the God of Israel, who is the source of good in the created world, could not possibly play this role. So an apt representative of cosmic evil had to be found. So this is what Azazel serves as, and it's probably a very, very old uh, tradition. And so the scapegoat, if we think about Azazel that way, the scapegoat is really the means of transportation. That's how the sins get from Israel to the way that they can be expiated is on the scapegoat who took it with it, right, um, to this Eretz Gezerah, this, this cut-off place. But he goes to the meaning of Gezerah. Knoll goes to the meaning of Gezerah to say it can mean a cutting off. And a, it can mean a cutting off of, of physical things, but it can also mean the cutting of a life, the death of a person or an animal. He says, thus, Eretz Gezerah can be interpreted as either a land that is physically inaccessible, cut off, or in a more abstract and metaphoric manner, the land of death, which makes more sense to me, right? If you're going to, if you have this kind of frame of reference of Baal and Mot in the area anyway, and now you've got Yudhe and Azazel, and the goat's going to go to Azazel to take all those sins back to kind of the evil source, if you will, it makes sense that it would be Eretz Gezerah, over and against life and flourishing and purity and holiness, you're going to send it to the opposite, right? The land of death. Because remember, what is the highest form of Tum'ah? What is the highest form of impurity we get? Death, Death. right? Contact with a corpse communicates the highest level of Tum'ah. So that is the force. Death is the force that causes Tum'ah, that causes ritual impurity. Remember, we talked about menstrual blood means a possible baby died, right? It It didn't result in a pregnancy. Right. We've talked about all the ways that that the ritual impurity is connected to death. That it kind of makes sense that you would send the goat to not the life place, but the death place that disrupts life, that disrupts the regularity of life. Remember, purity is not great or bad and impurity is not bad. It just is the state of regularity. What upsets regularity and our contact, our ability to have contact with, with the pure and with the holy, death. I think it's Rabbi Iris Stone who writes about sin. He describes, based on Torah, based on this system, he describes sin as moments of death in life. So we're not talking about actual death. That's not what he means, right? There's nothing sinful about somebody dying, right? That's not what he means. He says sin is moments of death in life, moments when we choose something more aligned with the deadly than with what is life-giving, right? When I lash out at somebody in anger and embarrass them, um, then I am am leaning into the forces of death and harm, 
rather than those of holiness and goodness and compassion and love, right? So I love that, that idea. So, so this connection with death and sin and life and, uh, and purity. Uh, and he, that's his, that's his thing about mode. He said this, you know, might support the argument of scholars who want to make Azazel kind of parallel with mode, the Canaanite god of death. Um, but he goes on to be very clear that, that it is a passive force and does not actively, um, challenge Yudhevave. I'm going to give you one more idea and then we'll talk. So he says that this is a later gloss, this date. And then the original form would have been completely cut off from any kind of understanding of it being related to an agricultural time of year, right? Um, and so then he wants to give us one more idea, and that is that if you look at Genesis 1, Genesis 1 is P. Genesis 1 it, it contains other material too, but, but, in, but has a lot of P in it. In the P discussion of creation, remember we have two creation stories? Remember? Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. You remember that, right? Genesis 1 is the one we're more familiar with, and that's P. How does P talk about creation? How does creation happen? It is through Vayavdel. God distinguishes. God separates light from dark, earth from water, the firmament right, the upper waters from the lower waters. Creation stands because of the order that comes out of God separating things and making them distinguishable from one another. That's P. All right. Knoll wants us to understand this text in light of P's version of creation. Why? Other places, when you've studied with me about the Mishkan, some of you, you know that the Mishkan mimics creation, right? The creation of the Mishkan mimics the creation of the universe. It's the, it's the system within which the people and the priests as their functionaries on their behalf will allow us to be in relationship with the creator, so then, of course, we have something, we have to have something that reflects the creator's process and the creation. So the menorah is the light, right? The bread is the stuff that grows, right? We have all of these representations. We have animals that were, right, that are used for korban, for sacrifice. So we have all this stuff in the Mishkan, and you can look it up, how the Mishkan parallels the seven day, six days of creation, and then Shabbat. Okay. So if we accept that the Mishkan mimics creation and peace, creation is about separation and distinction, then we get how, um, how you have to take then the representation of creation and you have to make sure it remains tahor. It has to be cleansed. So if it's about separation, then how do you cleanse the Mishkan, this representation of creation and the creator? You must separate between holy and unholy, tahor and tameh, and you must separate between life and death. You have to have azazel, is what he's arguing. You have to. If you're really going to go with P and you're really going to go with separation, you need Yudhe Vave, the source of life and growth and flourishing, 
and you need you need to separate that from moat, right? From death and those things that create moments of death in life. If we want to put a modern uh, contemporary spin on it, he says we may conclude by saying that the separation of good and evil, pure and impure, on the day of atonement in the tabernacle can be seen as a symbolic act re-establishing the original orderliness of the universe. Okay, so he brings Genesis 1 and P's explanation of separation as what creates order and life and says, so then doing that same thing in the Mishkan on the Day of Atonement, once a year on Yom Kippur, separating good and evil, life and death, purity and impurity, that reestablishes the original order, the original separating that allows the world to continue. And in this case, allows the Jewish people to be in relationship with the creator. Okay, I just gave you a whole lot. So Bert, if you want to call on people, go down to manage participants, people, and you can raise your hand. And Bert will call on you. This is so foreign to me from I Judaism I understand today. I knew you were gonna say that. <laughs> Connect them, please. Connect Didn't them. I say at the beginning Bert will not like this, that we're in this part of the triennial? Didn't I say that? All right. So for folks like Bert, he's way more into what happens pages and pages later, which are moral and ethical guidelines that still we can reconstruct for today. They may not match exactly how we would talk about them, but they're pretty easy to reconstruct. For people like Bert, this is like, what? What are you talking about? There is no meaning that I can put on this for today, for me. Help me, Rabbi, be able to do that. You understood my question very well. (laughs) So partially, I want to say, I don't know. Like, I... I don't think there's a way to necessarily reconstruct this ritual, but I think the idea that we still are deeply attached to on Yom Kippur, the idea that we can somehow hit a restart, you know, reset, that we can hit a button that's reset, that we have this set of, um, of, uh, of minhagim, of practices that we do that helps us affect a sense of expiation, right? And and we get, and in that later gloss, the people are included. What are they supposed to do? Oppress their souls. Everywhere we see that term, it has something to do with fasting. So the people are to fast and to not work and to make this a Shabbat Shabbaton, a major Shabbat kind of practice. And all of these rituals are done on their behalf. But of course, later when the system um, is gone because the second temple is destroyed and we don't have the priesthood anymore, the rabbis transfer all of this to the idea of teshuva, right? Of repentance. I do kind of, I really like the idea of having some sort of ritual that has us feel like some level of dross of junk has been removed. Like when I rub Judy's shoulders because she's really hurting and she's laying down flat, 
my my massage therapist used to do this thing where she would kind of like brush her hands over me and like get off the ickiness, you know, and then brush me again and get off the ickiness. And that's Judy's favorite part of me giving her a massage. Okay, why? She says it really does help. Like it really it does something. I don't know what. And if you know Judy, that's not the way she tends to think about the world. Um, but there's something that it affects to feel like the junk somebody's intention and, and somebody who has the ability to move it off and get rid of it. I think this is what is so moving to people right now about mikvah, about changing station, changing um, status, right? It, uh-oh, she heard me. I heard my kitty. <laughs> um, so the, there's something that really, you, you don't, you don't, I feel like conversion when I'm doing conversion with somebody and they say, do I have to do mikvah? Now I go into a lecture gently, but I go into a lecture. And by the time I'm done with that lecture, they're like, oh, I never thought about it that way. And when they come out of the mikvah, they're like, thank you so much, Rabbi, for insisting on mikvah, because it really does help people feel changed that you become different with that right of purification. And it's something that my intention about wanting to be a better person just can't do. That's all we got now. But I miss this ritual, some kind of ritual that really feels like you have removed the junk and get to start clean and get to start fresh. Okay, we have Mehmet and then Pam. Um, I really love when the Torah gets personal to me, and it always um, does get personal to me. Sometimes it's just a character or a single word. And um, some of you may know that I flew into Turkey, where I'm originally from, last Saturday, and I've been under quarantine in a single room uh, without step, stepping out for, you know, once for the last six days. And I've got food, I've got everything, I've got flowers today from a friend I've got even baklava but all I'm seeing in this text this week is not not anything that you really explain it's I just want to be the scapegoat and even if it's the the entire sin of the the Israelite people I I want to carry it and I just want to step out and be able to do my 20,000 steps and I and I love it because each week I connect to some little portion of the Torah and I just wanted to share it with you all. Thank you, Mehmet. Right. So this idea of, of carrying something and going, it moves the people that goat moves the people by walking out into the desert, taking its 20,000 steps, right. Um, flip it. Right. So it, it, it goes 20,000 steps and it, it actually affects the future of the people. And we, we've lost like a sense of that. We've, we've lost a sense of that. For, for me, it's a loss. Um, Pam? Yeah, going way back to the beginning of the Parsha, it seems to me that we're given the reason Nadav and Avihu died is that they draw, drew too close to the Sancta, it, that it wasn't the Ash Zarah. Yeah, so that is ab- absolutely a tie many scholars make, is that line that says Aaron can't come in 
to the other side of the parochet anytime he wants, right, is directly related back to Nadav and Avihu. Who but got actually, on the, uh, the first verse, it says that's the reason why they, his sons... No, it doesn't. It, it doesn't say that's the reason. It well, says it God spoke to Moshe after the death of the sons of Aaron, uh-huh. who died, right? When they came, Lifnei Adonai. We have that in the other text. Yeah. We knew that. We knew that last week. Yeah. In Lifnei Adonai. They came before Adonai, Bihikraftan, right? They brought their, you know, that, that verb is about bringing an offering. Lifnei Adonai, before Adonai. So we knew that last week. The only difference we have is that we're told Aaron can't come in there whenever he wants to. Right? That's the tie to they got too close. Right? And some scholars say, no, it's not. That's not it. It is the Eshzara. It doesn't say that they got too close. It just says that they brought that Lifnei Adonai, and that's what got them, you know, burned up. Because it affected the fire coming out from the Kodesh Kedoshim. Other people want to argue. Other people want to argue. Well, how could that have burned them up if you know if they weren't that they were close, right? And in Aaron being told you can't come anytime you want, it was a way of connecting cause and effect. And I had read just a commentary. I, I can't remember the name of the rabbi, but he said that um, that Nadav and Avihu didn't have four things to get that close is um, the linens, the sacrifice, and they needed to be married and have children. That's not in our text, but... It's very rabbinic. I, it is. It's very rabbinic. Because they could have been very young. Right. Yeah. So the rabbis are like, one of the things that they sinned by was that they refused to take wives. And no, so, they weren't making it a sin. They were making it like they were too young and they did not achieve this yet in life. Okay. So, all right. Very good. Uh, we have Rita and then James Lieberfarb. Rita? I was wondering about the real meaning of Azazel. I remember, you know, as a kid, when I was in Jewish day school, people would say Lech Azazel, which we sort of interpreted as go to hell. Is that incorrect? Is it, it sounds very incorrect from what we've been talking about, but is there an understanding of what Azazel is? No, there isn't. Um, this is the only place we get it. This is the only place we see it. So I, I too grew up saying Lech Azazel, right? Go to hell. Um, because it was the closest we had. You know, go to the land of death. Go to the land, you know, associated with death. In that way, it connects, but it's not the same as hell. So if you want to use Christian language for go to the place associated with ickiness, it's hell. If you want to say that Jewishly, some people suggested by giving us this expression, um, you say go to the place associated with ickiness, which is Azazel, right? So in that sense, it's the same. Go, go to the bad place. That's, that's the way you curse somebody, go to hell. But it's not, but the actual places don't, aren't the same because we don't have that. Right? We don't have we don't have hell. So this is the closest we have, which is the place of death and ickiness. Gehinom plays that that role too a little bit, right? The Gehinom. James, you have your hand up? Yes. Rabbi, two two points. First yes, sir. would it be fair to say what I took away what Aaron would be 
any rabbi, you, any holy priest who makes a sacrifice on behalf of the Israelites, that you are in a sense, or any rabbi or a holy priest, are you, you are Aaron, you are us. Uh, would you, you agree or disagree with that? And then the second point or another thing that I, I sort of took away from this is that your point about when we do a sin, when I am either impatient with somebody, I am gossiping about somebody or speaking ill of somebody or dishonest, that I myself am doing a death because I am cutting myself off from the divine. Interesting. So to that last point, my my Chavruta partner, Rabbi Hannah Lehner, um, she says, when I was saying, you know, she was saying, well, how do you bring this into today? I'm like, I don't. Bert Kleinman needs that. I don't. Right. So um, she says, well, for me, I talk about Eretz Gezerah. Like where, where, what is sin about? It's about being cut off. It's about being cut off from the forces of holiness and goodness and, and the divine. And, you know, that, that that's exactly what it is. We're cut off from that. And so she says for her, that's what Eretz Gezerah is about. So yes, to, to your last point, to the point before that, you know, we've had this conversation before about, you know, what, what is the role of rabbi? And that, of course, the rabbis were very clear to democratize the rabbinate that we are not priests, that we, and even the priests were no different from Israelites. They were just assigned this duty and they were assigned this responsibility, but they were no different than regular Israelites. They sin, they make mistakes, you know, all that stuff. So the rabbis were very clear that rabbis are not different than other people. We are given the title teacher. Rav means abundant. Rav is the Hebrew for rabbi, means abundant. What is it referring to? An abundance of learning, right? And when we're given our certificate that makes us a rabbi, it says she will now be called Morah be Yisrael. Rav and and Morah, a teacher in Israel. That's what we get, is the license to teach in Israel. That's all. We're teachers. Now, lots of folks in the class had other responses when they said, yeah, but when you bless us, it feels different, right? And there is a priestly component to some of what we do. And I, and I, where I feel it the strongest is when I'm blessing the B'nai Mitzvah in front of the open ark. That's like reciting the words of the priestly benediction over these kids. Um, I do really feel a sense of, of the priesthood, right? That there is something different about me placing my hands on this kid in front of the open ark than if Uncle Tom did it. And so um, what that is, I think, really is about, hopefully anyway, earning some authority that goes with committing one's life to the service of the Jewish people. I think that's what's going on, right? That people in Jews in the pew experience the authority from the Bima that, that only comes from de- dedicating one's life to studying Torah and perpetuating, you know, this tradition and working on behalf of the Jewish people. I think that's what's going on there. Uh, Mehmet, again, Mehmet. And Sarah and Judith Ubik and Meg. Uh, this also takes me back to Isaac's story, uh, the story of Korban. We have the goat, 
uh, that is being sent from God, which is uh, offered as korban. And then uh, we have korban that is being offered to God inside the uh, Mishkan. And then uh, another goat is being set free. Uh, and that, that takes me back to Isaac. I, I see that scapegoat as Isaac. I know Azazel doesn't really mean in, uh, um, anything positive, but in Arabic, as far as I know, Azazel is, is, a, word, is a word also means the one who's being um, uh, pardoned, who's, who's being liberated. Right. So in that sense, that, that goat that gets to go out there is like Isaac. It didn't become the korban, right? It, it gets to go free. There's consequences, right? It, it, it's got to carry all those sins, and it's got to go to Azazel. And in Isaac's case, I believe he was damaged forever, right, by that experience. So that there's, there's consequences to being liberated from almost having been the korban. Um, but, yes, in that, in that sense, both of them go free. The other thing it parallels for me is the ritual at the end of the leper coming back into the camp. There's one bird, right, that is – its neck is snapped, and it is the korban. And the other bird, its wings are dipped in that blood, and it is sent off. It's another, another ritual of riddance, you know, like take this with you. And in that sense, I would, I would love to have you write the article, Mehmet, on what Isaac carried with him. What was it, right, he, he carries as he steps off that altar and into the rest of his the, life? The entire story of the Jewish people with all its sorrows and joys. All right, all right um, Judith? I had a couple of questions. One, I've always understood the definition of sin in Judaism to be missing the mark. And that's kind of what you're saying in a different way. It's to me, I see a balance of aiming for something and not getting there. So the balance is off and that's the impurity. The balance is having a contact with yud heh vav that is solid and sound and, and clearly aimed. And when you're not aimed that way, that's the sin. It, it doesn't have the same definition at all that it does in Christianity of burning in hell. If you, if you miss the mark. The other thing, we do have the Tashlik service. Does that serve in any way as the same kind of reminder of? Yeah, I think so. I think it's, I think it's the rabbinic, um, well, medieval, whatever, um, kind of answer to that desire for an act of riddance. One of these rituals of riddance. Right. Right. And so it's not commanded, but it became minhag. It became a beloved custom. And I think the reason it became popular and beloved was because we really still want some kind of ritual of riddance. And it's what we got. That's what we got. That's what we got left. Right. All right. And and, uh, Azalel has nothing to do with Bezalel, the artistic community. Okay. No. Uh, Sarah? Go ahead. Take away is the choice in all cases of life that that choice is the one to make as long as you're alive. And we uh, are on that side. And what you feel at a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah is that profound sense of a life unfolding before you that you have helped 
to unfold in a good way. And that's beautiful. And at my time of life, I feel that every day I'm here or that Itzik is here is another chance for something good. Lovely, as always, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you. And, and the work, spiritual work, is all about those of us not at your stage of life trying to get there, right, um, to, to remember every day is an opportunity to, to do it differently. Um, and, and for folks who at your stage who, who aren't reflecting you know, on that, that, that that's, the, that's the work, right? Um, all right, Meg? I almost don't want to say anything after what Sarah just said, because that was the most beautiful um, summation. I, 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 I just, just to comment or ask, because in listening to, you know, your, your outlining of all of this, is there any place where there's, um, in, in taking away that sin, that darkness, that shadow, that there is some kind of transmutation? Is it stated in the text? Because, for me, if I'm looking from today, you know, and it's not that I say I don't like this, but my question, the question that arises is if we're looking at everything as some distillation of light into emanations of light, into contractions. In the body, you gave the example of, of, of rubbing the thing, some friction in some way that releases. Why? So the body can come back into more light, into more flow, into relaxation you know it's there's a a bodily thing that's happening because something is removed from i think the hard part for me perhaps to relate i don't know if anyone else feels this way is when it stays in separation because ultimately is there not a return to the oneness does that shadow does that dark does not have to then be dissipated or in some way brought back into light because light would have to be greater than any contraction. So not, 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 not for P. For P, separation is critical, right? So baby has to separate from mother to live, right? Or else you both die. So the separation is critical, and that is how order is maintained, and boundaries and yes. keeping things apart is what's important. I, from a historical point of view or from that kind of mind, from that perspective, I understand the, 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 that, that from oneness into duality. I, under, I understand that, good and evil and, and whatnot. But ultimately, ultimately, is not creation then an, a, 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 a sort of giving to the vessel no different than you than you blessing the child. It's an open vessel that can receive the light to then grow. And, and, and the child is a contraction in a one way, but a vessel for light, for your light or the transference of light, which is energy, which is goodness, which is, I don't know, I'm, not, I'm just going way out, but I'm just saying the separation is so two-dimensional. It sounds so two-dimensional. Well, that's what we, we're not biblical anymore. Right. We've had thousands of years to evolve past this point. Okay, so from, so, so from a historic, so, so to keep that into sort of a historical perspective then. Yeah. No, I get it. Okay, I got yeah. it. Yeah, for P, this is the system. Like, this is how it works. We've evolved way past that into lots of different ways to think beyond duality and what does that mean and what is duality anyway. You know, like, what, that's way Okay. Later thinking. Okay. So just looking at this as an interpretation. Okay. 
from a historical. And that's why you don't need, perhaps what Bert needs from this. That's what you're saying. This is just, you can look at this from a historical perspective and how it relates back within this book or this text or this series of humans that are reinterpreting this over time. Well, yeah. And for me, there are elements of this that I still long for. I guess that's what I'm saying about how I bring it forward. It's harder for Bert. I'm speaking for him now, but mm -hmm. it's, I think it's harder for Bert to bring it forward. It's not hard for me. Mm -hmm. I want to split some of that off. I want to split it off and get rid of it and have a goat carry it to Azazel. Get it away from me, <laughs> right? There's just this human desire, and I hear what you're saying, that you can also have the darkness subsumed in light, and then that, 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 that whatever, whatever works for everybody in terms of their metaphor mm -hmm. for how we deal with death and sin and darkness and evil and blah, 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 blah. There's a part of, of me, that's why I love Star Trek, right? There's a part of me that really misses this kind of absolute distinction and separating I miss that. I want that. Is so it that's ultimate philosophy about what evil and sin is really about? No, of course not. But there is a part of me that would love a ritual of riddance. And I get it. Like, I wish we could figure out a way to bring it forward. I love Tashlich for that reason. I've been taking Ellie, as I told you, since she was a little girl to do Tashlich. Because it was one of the few concrete ways I could say, tell mommy what she's done wrong. And let's, let's get it out. Let's get rid of it. Let's, right. And there was some way that was always so powerful, a ritual for me. And coming out of Yom Kippur, a fasting and being on the bima for a million hours straight, right? Like my back is killing me. My throat is killing me. I hurt everywhere. I'm exhausted. And I feel transformed. Yes, because there's a, there's a refinement that happens in that. Process. I don't think it's refinement. That's what I'm saying. I don't think so. You don't experience it that way. No, I, I experienced it through confession and get it out. So, I want it out. So porn <laughs> is more representational. Is right. that what you're saying? That this story is more representational of the thing that you desire. Yeah. Yes. What is the actual prescription for what is the actual prescription for? What I'm just saying is you're not you're not suggesting this is the actual like get a goat and like it's more no, of a representation. No, 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 no. It's no. representational of what that process should can be for each of us, and it's prescribed through this story for us as a people. Yes, because this was how we did it once. Once upon a time, this is how we did it. This this was meaningful and and worked for our people at one time. It's not anymore, but, but once upon a time. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.